Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. This week's episode is called Which Places Are Handling the Pandemic Best and How Can We Tell? Uh, As the pandemic has rolled on for a year now, uh, obviously the outcomes have differed enormously across countries, across states and regions within those countries. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And that's what we want to delve into in this week's episode. Many many think tanks or, or public health organizations have tried to rate countries. And I want to start with that concept, the fact that there are these ratings floating around. They're often saying that Taiwan or Singapore or New Zealand are at the top of the list and Brazil or maybe the UK or Sweden or sometimes the US are near the bottom. Uh, before we get into what they should be measuring when they do that, which I think was going to be the core of this episode, Carl, I want to start with what are the metrics they are using when we see these these rankings what are they ranking the most common ones i've seen focus on kind of the fundamental outcomes of the pandemic so things like number of cases number of deaths and testing availability and, and prevalence and and i think it's important to have that last one because you might be missing some cases or deaths with, without it and and by the way I should mention that while neither of us are experts in medicine or public health, we, we are experts in, <laughs> not really, but we are uh, very experienced in talking about rankings and ratings in other contexts. So I think this episode is 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 something that, that we, we can uh, find some analogies in other areas of analysis. Uh, does that sound like kind of the right set of, of indicators for what is, is currently being looked at when we see these rankings? Yes, exactly. The, there was one one of these rankings that actually triggered us doing this episode this week. It came from the Lowy Institute in Sydney. And just to, to, to get a clear idea of what it claims to be measuring, it, it measures how countries have managed the pandemic. And it, it used six criteria. Those six criteria were confirmed cases, confirmed deaths, confirmed cases per million people, confirmed deaths per million people, confirmed confirmed cases as a proportion of tests and tests per thousand people. And I, I'm not sure how or if they were weighted, but but that was it. And of course, there are other other rankings out there, surely other methodologies and other, other factors we could consider. So, so Carl, with, with that as sort of our baseline, I mean, it, is that a good way to measure how countries or regions are managing the pandemic? Well, I would start by just using anything that's been normalized in some way, whether it's uh, cases to number of tests or cases and deaths to population. I think counting the the raw count of cases and deaths and then having news reports saying, huh, it seems like small countries have handled this better than big countries is a sign that a ranking wasn't very carefully constructed. I, I don't really see why, you know, let's say Brazil with, I don't know, 200 million people, should should be expected to have the same number of deaths as a country with two million people. What do you think? Yeah, the, the small countries do fare very well in these these rankings. Usually, I'm sure there are exceptions. I can't think of small countries that have fared particularly poorly. But knowing that raw numbers are part of of these rankings makes me question the whole enterprise, um, even if some of the other criteria are valid ones. Are, can you think of any small countries that that stick out as as being bad ones? I mean, maybe we could throw Sweden into that category. It's not a really small country, but it's relatively small compared to the hundred million plus countries like like um, the U.S. and Brazil. But but are there small countries I'm I'm missing that are usually at the wrong end of these rankings? You mean for the pandemic specifically? Yeah. Because, you know, there is a phenomenon where when you rank a bunch of places on some measure, uh, even normalized for population, you end up getting a bunch of small places near the top and near the bottom just because you'll get more variance with, with a small population. 
in in this case, I I do think we've seen some really bad outbreaks in small countries. I mean, some of the smallest states of Europe, the ones that play in the games of the small states of Europe, when we have things like that, the some of them have had some of the worst per capita rates at times over the last few months. And then going to slightly bigger countries, I think Portugal, Ireland, Israel are among countries that have had really high case rates, in, in Israel's case, a couple of times over the last few months uh, with really bad outbreaks. So, yeah, I think some small countries have struggled. And uh, Sweden, we said uh, maybe that does, maybe that doesn't qualify as small, but uh, it, it too has had a really high death rate relative to its neighbors. Yeah, and we, uh, I want to come back to Sweden. We could probably do an entire episode just on Sweden, but we'll we'll touch on that a little later on in, in this episode as well. So of the very small countries, uh, or some of the other small countries that stick out as as usually being labeled as handling the pandemic well, uh, Iceland comes to mind. New Zealand always comes to mind. Uh, I'm not sure of the population of Taiwan, but it is it is geographically small, and it's usually at or near the top of these lists. Uh, the three I've just mentioned are islands, which make things, things easier. I mean, the, the best performing region of, of the U.S. is American Samoa, which has some of the same advantages. Um, is it because these are just islands and it's easier to close and control the borders? Or is, is there more to it that makes some of these countries more likely to be successful in managing the pandemic? Yeah, the island factor feels big. And um Singapore, another small country with, you know, a lot of ability to isolate itself, uh, has also has also had very few cases and seems to have controlled it well. I think the story in, in a lot of these places is related to its their history as relatively self-contained small populations where there there's more likely to be cohesion and more likely to be kind of social norms that, that are more universally adopted. Um, it's it's just, you know, easier to marshal a population of a couple of million themselves pretty self-contained and with a history of being self-contained. So, you know, a lot of these explanations can feel kind of post hoc, like we're coming up with the explanations after the fact, but th- it does make sense that in the same way that we're talking about a group of 2 million people as a country that we're comparing to a group of 300 million, it and and those are so different. And yet, if we talk about American Samoa or Hawaii, the analogy can can feel clearer. It does seem like we're really talking about the equivalent of self-contained city-states and the advantages that would be contained with having kind of uh, one level of government potentially, or or levels of government that work more closely together and are covering more similar uh, populations. I'm glad you brought up this, uh, the idea of, of social cohesion and that, that being a factor, because that is something you hear a lot about. And I can throw Norway into that ring as well. I mean, Norway is obviously not an island, but it has a, a fairly small population. It's usually cited as a country that has high levels of, of social cohesion, and its results have been very, very good, uh, especially in these comparisons with, with Sweden. I mean, the, the countries around Sweden and Scandinavia, uh, Norway, Denmark, and Finland have, have done extremely well, um, whether you compare them to Sweden or just take them on their own terms. And, and that's something that you'll generally hear about uh, when talking about these Scandinavian societies. Now, you're right, too, that this sounds very post hoc. There's one article that we both looked at in preparation for this episode that was published in Nature back in September that identified a sense of exceptionalism as being a problem for for the countries that have done very badly. And it wasn't entirely clear to me in the article whether we were talking about exceptionalism as an attitude of the people or exceptionalism as an attitude of the political class. And I suppose the two are related, but it, it pointed to Americans thinking themselves exceptional, um, British thinking themselves exceptional, Brazilians, or at least uh, Bolsonaro considering himself or themselves exceptional, and those three places having very bad outcomes. And I'm not sure I totally understand the distinction if there is one, uh, if this is more than just a a convenient post-talk explanation. Do Do you think there's a useful distinction to be made between countries that I mean, have this level of social cohesion and thus I would presume have a fairly strong 
national identity versus the countries that are exceptionalist and thus have a problem. Is there a distinction there? Ooh, it's hard to make one that isn't post hoc. I, I guess, I mean, they're like maybe for bigger countries, the one thing that unites people and the political class is, is hubris, which is what nature also called what they were attacking. And so maybe there's, there's a sense of having all of the kind of bluster and nationalism and none of the advantages, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you that it's, it's hard to turn that into a framework that would be useful in, let's say, predicting who would handle vaccine distribution better or who would handle the next dangerous variant or the next pandemic entirely. So I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. There's something satisfying about it because we want to tell stories that say this, these were clear mistakes made by people or their leaders that if they had been handled differently would have led to much better outcomes and therefore we can learn from it and, and avoid it in the future. But uh, I, I, I think a lot of these struggle to, to make me feel that comfort. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, what, what would be like, is there like another story we could tell about those countries that, that is more realistic, but maybe harder to, to frame in an editorial? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it, it, and I, I generally shy away from any kinds of, like psychological generalizations about peoples. I mean, I, I understand you can probably say some of these things about political classes and certainly the approach to most problems of say Ernest Solberg and the Norwegian government versus Donald Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, we're talking about very, very different people with very, very different approaches to these problems. And sure, uh, the U.S. government itself is going to, think in more exceptionalist terms than the Norwegian government or the Finnish government or probably than the New Zealand government. Uh, so that seems valid to me. But but yeah, when, when you start talking about the peoples in general, it's, that's where you really run into problems. And it's, you don't need to look any further than the U.S. to, to hear that. So, so if, if you watch the news from Europe and get a sense of what Americans are like during the pandemic, then you hear a lot about the right-wingers and anti-vaxxers and people who refuse to wear masks. And I mean, you hear about that in the U.S. as well, but of course, that's just one segment of the U.S. So to say that the U.S. has fared the way it has fared because Americans are the way they are, that sentence has virtually no meaning. Americans aren't the way they are singular. It just doesn't work. And that means either A, you can't use a, a, a method like that as a, with any predictive power at all, or you need to zero in on specific regions. And maybe that's, that's one direction you can go and say that certain regions of the U.S. have better or worse outcomes because they have different attitudes about how exceptional they are. But even there, that doesn't really hold up in terms of the outcomes we've seen. So, so it's tricky. I, I, I don't like it either as a predictive measure or really as a as a post hoc one, except in analyzing how people are thinking about the problems. I don't I don't think it has a, a ton of value. And one problem is so many of the stories we're hearing about places that are successful or unsuccessful is we've looked at them at one point in time and come to certain conclusions. So you mentioned Ireland as one country that had. Uh, had very bad outcomes since the holidays, pretty much. People are pointing at the the Christmas holiday as as being the start of a, of a very bad turn for Ireland's numbers. But only a few months ago, Ireland was a success story. So I'm wondering, Carl, if we are ranking countries during the pandemic, how much value does that have when two months from now, the story could be totally different? What does that say about the exercise of ranking countries in the middle of the pandemic itself. Yeah, I think we end up hearing story. Sometimes people have stories in their head and then wait for the numbers to match them and then tell those stories and then don't revisit them if, if the numbers change. And again, we, we bring some analogous experience from sports and there's a, there's a whole industry around 
ranking players among the greatest of all time, let's say, to, to have a more positive example. And so much of that is rendered meaningless by the events of the next few months in that sport. So now to talk again about something much more grim, a global pandemic, things can turn around in a matter of weeks or months in, in both directions. And you know, there, if you looked in the summer, you could have said that New York City was handling the pandemic better than just about anywhere in the world. But in, in last March, April, May, it, it had, you know, the the highest death totals and among the highest death rates. So um, it's it reminds me of one of the headlines we saw about Sweden. I know we'll, we'll really delve into Sweden, but this could be for any country. It was like, you know, almost satisfied that Sweden had finally had a really bad wave of the pandemic. And, and this now finally proves that, that Sweden's approach was a failure. And it felt like the author could not wait to tell that story, but didn't have the chance yet. And we've in turn seen a lot of stories about places that, that seemed really successful, like California, turn around in the other direction. So it, it it's helpful, I think, if we say this place was successful at this time for this reason, while acknowledging that if you could get the whole population to unite around certain measures for July and August, and, and that worked out well in terms of case counts, that doesn't mean that things are going to go the same way in November and December. So let's say that we fast forward to one year from now. So it's February 3rd, 2022, and uh, much of the world's population has been vaccinated. We've pretty much moved on to other problems. We're starting to do a postmortem of the whole pandemic. And we have final numbers from every country, or not final numbers, but we have much more final numbers of, of case counts and, and death counts and so on. We're really starting to get a grip on the whole situation. At that point, will the intermediate numbers matter? In terms of overall evaluation of overall country or place performance? Yeah, I mean, it, it, if we let, let's say we do some kind of smart ranking with as yet undetermined criteria in February 2022, and it, it says New Zealand's number one, Taiwan's number two, U.S. is number 73, Brazil's number 93. That's our that's our leaderboard at the end of the whole of the whole process. Uh, at that point, can we just throw away all these intermediate rankings or do the intermediate rankings from February 2021 or June 2020, do those have any value? Do they, do they have any lessons for us for the future? Not particularly. I mean, they might help us decide what the shape of the of the ranking system we end up using should have. The The one thing I think that is more of an intermediate stat that will be really useful, or, or, or two really related ones, kind of hospital utilization and, um, sorry, I'm going to say three, <laughs> hospital utilization and excess deaths generally, both to sort of capture what was the overall impact on the healthcare system and, and did other people who were never infected or never sick lose their lives because of the the poor management of overall healthcare resources. And then the third one is is all the kind of economic impact factors. And I guess you could say you could do that in a cumulative way, but some of the, the events that happen are events during the period that may sort of on paper look like they were resolved. Like if you lose your job and then get it back or lose your home and then get another home, but are still traumatic and dangerous events. So I think, and, and you know, we, we've mostly been talking from a health perspective on this show, but I think all of these countries are implicitly trying to also keep their economies somewhat healthy and, and protect people economically. So uh, it's fair to also evaluate them on those. So I, I guess interim, all of those may involve how things progressed, although you could come up with cumulative scores that may be uh, capture all of those as well. It's, one reason why I ask is you used some sports analogies before, and I'm thinking if it, let, let's go back to some much less grim analogies here. If if you're comparing, let's say players during a baseball season, 
players have some underlying skills, right? That, that maybe there's, there's luck involved in the numbers. Maybe the best player in the league is going to be number 15 in the rankings halfway through the year. There might still be some other indicators that he really is still the best, but there are underlying skills. And if there's an, a, a useful analogy here, there's some notion of pandemic preparedness. And one striking study that we looked at, it, it was on a site called Think Global Health that uh, compared how countries ranked on the Global Health Security Index with how they performed in the pandemic. And, and, and I don't remember the exact details of how each one is measured, what exactly it's trying to correlate. But the surprising, at least to me, outcome of that was that the countries with higher scores in terms of preparedness or, or the quality of the health system um, experienced higher death rates, even when controlling for differences in the age structure of the population. So if, if there is any underlying skill to use the sports analogy, that would be it, wouldn't it? Pre pandemic preparedness. But it seems like pandemic preparedness hasn't played a large part in, in country outcomes. I mean, is there, can you make any sense of that, Carl? Yeah, that was a fascinating finding. I, I mean, one, one possible conclusion is lousy ranking. Another possible conclusion is let's wait as you've suggested for the final numbers to decide how, how poor that ranking was, although it's hard to imagine it, that finding changing too much. I guess the last one, and maybe a more subtle one, difficult to measure, is if, if not for pandemic preparedness, how would these countries have done? And maybe the countries that invest in pandemic preparedness know how vulnerable they are generally. And let's just take the U.S. since I know it best. There are so many vulnerabilities in our healthcare system and, and to so much of our population generally that this pandemic was, was always going to pose a great threat to non-white people, to old people, to poor people. And people there, there are people who are vulnerable all around the world, but there are things structurally about our economy and our healthcare system that make so many people vulnerable to, to a respiratory pandemic or to hospitals being uh, out of capacity for new patients. So it could be that maybe the U.S. would have been even worse off without all of its preparedness. I mean, I recognize a lot of the pandemic preparedness was around uh, marshalling uh, response and equipment, and that all of that kind of failed. So that part of the ranking feels uh, like it was not done in a way that would actually capture the, the true preparedness. But I could see ways that that countries would 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 be more prepared because they would need to be uh, because of vulnerabilities relative to to peers. I, I don't know. Am I am I overthinking this evaluation? No, not at all. I think that that that's a a very good point. Um, and another thing I would I would tack onto that is pandemic preparedness is a, a really vague way of thinking about things. And I, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of managing national healthcare systems to, to do a much better job. But pandemic preparedness doesn't have to mean readiness for COVID or the next SARS or something. I mean, this is the next SARS, but I mean, it, it doesn't have to be centered around reacting to SARS not that many years ago and being ready for this, I think a lot of the U.S. thinking around this was being ready for the next Ebola or ready for Ebola itself to really arrive. And I, I'm not sure how much that translates. Obviously, there's, there's some similarities in terms of being ready for strains on the health system and being ready to, to quarantine people, but... They're very different problems, and that, that's that's one issue. That sure, the the SARS type of of viruses are something that could continue happening. We could be facing similar pandemics in the near future. Um, but even if we do come out of this and prepare very well for the next COVID, then if we get an Ebola instead or something else completely different from that, then maybe we'll look unprepared again, no matter how prepared we are for this. Now, one of the main factors that go that goes into these, uh, these things we're using as a proxy for pandemic preparedness, I think are, are just the, uh, the strength of the health system itself. So 
some countries rank higher because they provide universal health coverage or because they have very good and numerous hospitals, things that would apply to, to any kind of health problem. And I wonder if one place where those countries are, are shining or will shine is in the vaccine rollout itself. And do you think, Carl, that these, these measures will start to correlate better with outcomes when the vaccine becomes a bigger factor? I think it definitely could. And I, I think there are two reasons. Part of pandemic preparedness is just general resources. And it took resources for countries to be able to secure enough vaccines early on uh, to inoculate the population quickly and, and to kind of worry less about priority. And the the second part is just, yeah, I mean, this is this is really testing the basics of the public health system in terms of, uh, you know, safely distributing an important biopharmaceutical product, getting it to people, uh, persuading people to, to take it, you know, tracking who got the first dose. Th these are kind of um, some of the, the basic functions. So if they can do those well, then then this should be rewarded. And um, I think, that, you know, this is one area where the U.S. has looked bad within the U.S. and taken a lot of heat in terms of its vaccine uh, distribution. But in terms of like even population adjusted rates of, of getting vaccines um, into people, it's it's one of the highest rates in the world. So it, it maybe we are starting to see some of that uh, public health system rally even if it's not performing up to the standards of, of what we'd hope. And in the long run, it, it doesn't matter how we get there. What matters is like the, the final numbers of cases and, and deaths and overall effect on the economy and overall effect on, on health. So think, thinking back to what I suggested earlier, if we're looking at this from a vantage point of another year in the future, another two years in the future, uh, we're going to be basing these conclusions a lot more on how the vaccine rollout was managed. But I wonder if we should go one step further. I mean, this is, this is something I'm borrowing from one of the guys, I forget which one, at marginalrevolution.com, which I think I end up citing in just about every episode. They suggested back in the summer that we should be giving a lot more credit to the countries that gave us the vaccines in the first place uh, because of their economies or their cultures or whatever it is that allows the innovation to take place within their borders. And they use the example of the UK. I mean, the UK, by most of these measures, is doing very badly in the pandemic in terms of numbers of deaths, or even if you look at uh, whether, whether politicians are doing the right things, at least according to pundits. Uh, so if if Britain ranks, say, in the in the bottom 20th percentile of countries based on these criteria we talked about at the start of the show, but it gave us one of the most effective vaccines and one of the first ones to be developed and proven, uh, how, how do you weigh those things? I mean, did, do we put Britain at the top of the list because even despite the bad outcomes, um, they gave us something that saved so many more lives in the long run? Yeah, I, I think there was a an idea in that post which I found interesting, which is if there are going to be certain countries that particularly suffer from some health event, it it helps if th those countries have the resources and the will and the and the talent and and everything else to to create something to to fight it that can then be used globally. So, I guess having that. It, not that that would be the only reason that, that Britain would be the site of um, some of the vaccine development. I mean, I think almost every vaccine was an international collaboration. But if you, if you, you know, have sort of the, the pressure, the way that so many of the the researchers and public health people around the world completely redirected their careers around the pandemic for clear reasons, um, I... I think there is something to that. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd want to rank it separately. I mean, I think that's sort of a separate 
and often outside of, of government control. I mean, government has some control in terms of funding, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it feels to me like, like, a, like a separate category than how did we uh, protect people. I guess you could say it's related because if you develop a vaccine, then you are eventually going to be able to use that vaccine to prevent further um, further terrible outcomes to your population. I don't know. How, how would you how would you even include that? It's it's tricky, and maybe thinking of it as a separate ranking is a useful one. I, another way of thinking about it is it, it, the pandemic obviously is global in scope, and as as we sort of enter this hopefully final phase, uh, we're seeing more studies come out of people modeling at least what will happen as the the developed world. M- gets vaccinated and other parts of the world are slower to get vaccinated. And we're looking at this as a, a global integrated problem. Uh, and to some extent, even, even if we're looking at this from the, the lens of within the lens of a single country, uh, obviously deaths, case counts, other impacts within that country really matter. And, and I mean, may, maybe that should be the first, maybe even the only consideration but if you're measuring the quality of life, the strength of the economy in a country like Britain or the U.S., it depends enormously on the rest of the world, um, whether you're thinking about supply chains or immigration or even just the freedom to travel or keeping tourism and other industries open and humming. I mean, it's all it's all very integrated. And being in a position to provide vaccines or even just the technology or the knowledge to develop the vaccines to the rest of the world is very valuable. And maybe we're talking about third or fourth order effects at this point, but that's a big factor beyond just developing the tool to solve your own problem, which is one of the ways you phrased it, Carl. I mean, it's by being able to solve other people's problems, they can come back and solve ours again, at least at the the third or fourth order level. Well, I, I, I totally agree. I think that it makes sense for countries that can to think globally. And in, and also, I mean, I think this has been somewhat a theme of this show. It makes sense for them to think in terms of investment and payoff and are we investing enough in something that can have enormous payoff. And to the extent Britain helped develop vaccines, it would also make sense to invest in getting more vaccines to more places faster uh, partly for the economic and quality of life considerations you you mentioned, and and also just for public health reasons, uh, the more places uh, that get vaccinated sooner, the less likely that the pandemic will remain and return to your borders, potentially with some new dangerous variant. So, um, I think that Britain and and, and other countries might not get great political payoff right now domestically for doing this, but investing more in, in helping uh, with with the worldwide rollout would would pay off greatly for them and, and their peers. And it's worth noting that China is very consciously doing exactly that. I mean, China is always looking for ways to spread their soft power. And I mean, every country is doing that. I think we're just more aware of it because we are looking at a rising China and analyzing their activities around the world. Um, but they were the first to have a vaccine in production. They're delivering those vaccines to countries that would be pretty far down the queue of the the Western developed vaccines. And that's very consciously part of a strategy there. Um, and we, we might see at least a couple more stages down the road, countries in the West be more self-conscious about uh, about using the vaccines for soft power purposes. So... I don't have a good segue for this, but we've promised twice now we're going to talk about Sweden. So let's talk about Sweden. They have among the worst outcomes, but going back to some of the cultural things we talked about, one of the puzzles is cultural makeup seems to be a factor. And normally we can treat the Scandinavian countries as virtually just one blob, but Sweden has done horribly while the other Scandinavian countries have done very well, comparatively speaking. So... It's been in the news a lot as either a model or a, a terrible warning, especially now, especially a terrible warning, what not to do. So, Carl, what? let's start with the basics. What did Sweden do wrong? 
<laughs> what Jeff and Carl did wrong is try to evaluate Sweden halfway through. No, I, <laughs> assuming Sweden did, did wrong, which it seems to have so far, if we use the measures of, of case counts and deaths, it, it does seem like even though the government often denied it, that it, it was pursuing some kind of strategy of letting the virus spread, trying to keep it from people most likely to be most seriously ill or, or to die because of it, but otherwise not to particularly halt its spread. That's simplistic. I think we, we've talked before on the show about how they've uh, cut back on the number of really large events and uh, otherwise tried to at least restrain super spreading and, and big clusters. But there wasn't really a mask mandate or or really any belief that that they had a chance of of slowing down the virus so there wasn't a lockdown um and the mask thing in particular gets me so one of the stories that goes through some of the emails between government officials kind of laying out this approach um and their belief that by the fall there would be so much so-called herd immunity in their population that they wouldn't have a big wave of, of illness, which proved wrong, is we, we've said that masks are a pretty low-cost measure, and Sweden didn't really push them. And in general, this sort of predisposition of most Scandinavian countries' populations to masks was negative. And there was a photo of you know everyone on a subway platform not wearing a mask. And that, that seems like if the goal were at least to, to somewhat contain the spread instead of getting to this mythic um, victory of, of herd immunity, then that would have been an, an easy measure that, that wouldn't have had to halt any economic activity. What frustrates me about the making sense of the Swedish story is that you can point to things that the Swedish government did wrong early on. Uh, and it, it, one question that always comes to mind for me is, is how much the government directives about things like lockdowns and masks actually matter. And I think we touched on this in the last episode, Carl, that um, some of the studies that are coming out now looking at state-by-state -state comparisons in the U.S. of when lockdowns happened and looking at mobility data or cell phone data in those different places suggest that the lockdowns were a lagging indicator, not a lead leading indicator. Um, the lockdowns surely had some effect, maybe not at an aggregate level, but I mean, it, it meant it, something happened because of the lockdowns, but people mostly were locking themselves down in, res in response to their own fear or uh, concern or w what have you. People were making their own decisions. And that was true in Sweden as well in the beginning. So I was confused early on about this, why, why Sweden's numbers were bad early on, despite the fact that many of their behaviors, if not the government directives themselves, uh, were pretty similar to the rest of the world. And it's I'm not exactly sure where I'm going, where I'm going from he, for here. But one, one thing that really struck me, the article you're referring to, I think is one that was in the Wall Street Journal, that looked at the emails being sent around the Swedish government, that the Swedish government was, yes, apparently pursuing a strategy of some kind of herd immunity. They had what's probably a very low estimate of what it would take to get to herd immunity. And they were not admitting it. One thing that I really liked about the, the Swedish approach early on was that it seemed like the health officials were being very honest and upfront with their population. They, they were admitting what they what they didn't know. They weren't making big sweeping directives based on things they weren't sure about. And that seemed like the kind of transparency that the U.S. was desperate for at the time that the, the U.S. was telling people not to buy masks. Um, but it turns out they were being the opposite of transparent, which is which probably translated into a lot of fear and anxiety that kept people at home. But had them reacting in in the wrong ways. So I'm not I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of that, how that translates in into their results, but it it does seem like something Sweden has in common with the US even if the US never explicitly followed what they were at one time referring to as the Swedish strategy, but we talked last week about the the costs and benefits of transparency. I mean for as a 
member of the population, not the government, it seems like there's really only benefits to transparency. But I mean, at the risk of asking you a very open, very difficult question, Carl, what's the, do you think there's a long-term cost to this sort of lack of transparency? It seems like one common thread that runs through both Sweden's struggles and the problems that have persisted in the U.S., it's it's a great question and and I think almost every time we end up talking about public health messaging as as a theme of of each topic it's so important. I I would want to see more studies but you know I think this this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Do interim numbers matter? If if a place had a good few months but then in the end because of some terrible waves later on had a relatively high death rate, you know, maybe it was overall uh, not a good response. But what can we learn from from that from that interim result? What does it mean that uh, things were looking good and then they weren't? And and how much is it because of government and public health messaging and transparency? Uh, you know, is saying we're really not sure about these measures, but we, we think they're the best bet and we want to err on the side of caution and protecting people. We also don't really know how long this is going to last. So when we say, uh, you know, we're, we're planning this for the next two weeks, we're just giving our, our, our optimistic estimate, but this could be, this could last for a while, but we'll lift it as soon as we think it's possible. You know, things like that. Is the, is there something to learn from places that have kind of sustained success versus places that haven't, and is that part of the success of the some of the small island countries we talked about at the beginning? Um, I I have my hunches. I, I think that uh, not only does it pay off during a, a one to two year pandemic, but there are probably things you can measure at the end of that period in terms of overall attitude to vaccines, overall attitude to uh, to medicine and to to trust in public health messages and and maybe to understanding of some basic concepts around contagion um, that there are probably ways to evaluate the long term effects because this isn't going to be the last time that we face some kind of public health crisis on a global level and uh, not only do we want to get through this one with uh, as little uh, loss of life and, and illness as as we can but we also want to be prepared for the next one. So you're right to highlight the fact that we've talked about public health messaging in probably every single one of our episodes, and it's a big part of the pandemic experience for pretty much everyone on Earth for the last year. And it's an easy thing to talk about because it's covered so much in the news. I mean, if, if someone in a government says something, then it ends up in the news. We all analyze it. And I'm, I'm very interested in a distinction which probably has a technical name if we were, if one of us were a a scholar of uh, of government, which unfortunately we're not. But let uh, let's reinvent the wheel and say there's this distinction between government directives and government initiatives. So by directives, I'm thinking of things where the government says everybody, you do this or you do that. So a mask mandate, a lockdown, stuff like that, and initiatives being things like investing in tests, testing, tracing, uh, investing in vaccines, actually doing something rather than telling people to do something. And it, it, as a, it, rather than, than hint my answer to this question, I'll give you my answer and then ask what you, what you think about it, is I, I mentioned talking about Sweden that lockdowns seemed to be a lagging indicator. That maybe they do have a role, but for the most part, people were locking themselves down before somebody told them to stay home. At least at first, maybe there's lockdown fatigue, but that's kind of outside the scope of what I'm talking about. But things like testing capacity, testing frequency, I mean, obviously vaccines are, are, are going to be a huge factor in shutting the whole pandemic down. But when we look at the countries that have succeeded, if there's one commonality, even if it's not the, the first thing that gets talked about the most, it is frequent testing is a lot of tracing and sometimes enforced or incentivized isolation. It's these things that the government does, not what the government expects people to do because they say so. So, Carl, do you think that's a, a useful distinction? And, and do you think it has some bearing on the countries that have 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 had the best management of the pandemic so far? 
Absolutely. And I think it is a kind of messaging. And the message is, you can trust us because we are capable and we we can do positive things for you and, and for our overall health. I, I mean, I think I would be much more likely to follow a public health directive coming from an agency that I've seen, you know, roll out testing centers with competent, capable people with enough capacity, with, with, with scheduling systems, if there isn't enough capacity, uh, with, with rapid results, um, with, you know, like I haven't necessarily as one person encountered every so-called touch point of this system to be able to say overall, this is how well it's working. But overall as a population, I think that really has an effect. And I think the more we encounter positive experiences that lead to better health, with the healthcare system, not just during the pandemic, but during our entire lifetimes leading up to it, uh, the better we're we're going to to feel about what what they're we're being told to do, so to speak, uh, and even about the initiatives. I mean, vaccines are an initiative, and you have to feel good about vaccines and about public health and perhaps government generally to to trust them, even if uh, you're being told to trust them as a directive. So last question before we wrap this up, um, going back to our analogy of, uh, of sports rankings, one of the things we always have to take into consideration is just plain luck. And that's not just sports ranking. That's really any kind of evaluation you're doing of anything. Um, anything statistics is so much just measuring probabilities and the, the role of randomness and there's been some of that. I mean, mutations of the virus itself are are inherently random. I mean, some of the what has spurred the worst of of the last part of Britain's outbreak has been the fact that the B one one seven variant emerged there. So they've had to struggle with that before other countries did, and probably to a degree greater than other countries have. So if we're, I guess, the, I have two questions about this. That are closely related. One is how much of country to country or region to region results are luck, and how can we account for that when we're, we're ranking how countries have managed the pandemic? I think throughout the pandemic, there have been factors, including the contagion of the local variants, that have driven the immediate outbreak, but the way that countries have dealt with outbreaks, how quickly they've squashed them and how long they've sustained their 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 win um, has really varied. So, and, you know, there's also something about making your own luck here, including with the variants. To some extent, the countries we associate with variants have to do a little bit with, with testing and there there might be some variants we don't even know about yet in the US because of the the extent of, of testing analogous to how early in the pandemic the extent of the virus in different places was was partly driven by how much those places were even testing for the virus so, so that they would know that it's there um, but the more cases you have and the more uncontrolled the spread, the more opportunity for the virus to mutate and the more chance that one of those mutations will lead to a more dangerous form of, of the virus, whether because it's more contagious or for other reasons, including potentially eluding uh, vaccine protection. So I, I think there's luck involved, but I mean, there's luck involved in having a really bad early super spreader event or several of them in turn that, that lead to kind of uncontrolled growth from a small number of cases. Uh, there's, you know, the, the bad luck of having, well, <laughs> a lot of the other things I can think of are maybe more bad governance, but I think that there, there is definitely luck, but you, you know, once you've had the outbreak um, and you know what measures have worked and whether you can bring the population together to 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 you know carry out those measures and sustain them for long enough is is less about luck and more or maybe it's about luck of like the societal behavioral factors that pre-exist in a place but not so much about just the random luck of biology right the societal 
type of luck or government governance type of luck is probably not what most of us are referring to or what most of us think of about randomness because that's what we're trying to evaluate. So maybe maybe some random person on earth is lucky or unlucky because this happened in 2020 and not 2015 and that affected the governance that in the country where they lived. But in terms of ranking countries, then you kind of have to take that as a given. You wouldn't treat that as an external factor. Um, but that seems reasonable. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the luck drives the short term, but not the long term to general or to, to, to summarize what you said. So, so Carl, before we wrap up this episode, any final thoughts? You know, I just think that while we focused on countries in the U.S., there's been a lot of comparison of states, including during vaccine rollout. And I think a lot of the things we described apply. Uh, and, and, you know, these states are also so connected geographically and politically that, that it's hard to isolate an outbreak unless you're Hawaii, let's say. So um, it, it's been interesting to hear uh, often premature conclusions about which states were successful or more successful and for which reasons and, and based on different stages of the pandemic. And that's a really volatile measure because some of these places are really small too. So um, definitely also skeptical of those evaluations at this stage. I hope, and finally, I hope you're right that a year from now we can be looking back and doing a postmortem. I think for certain parts of the world that might not be the case. Yeah, that's true. And I'm, some of these things, I kind of hope that listeners will give us the benefit of the doubt that we're, we're not being, or I, in this case, I'm not being insensitive about it. But um, I, I, I do just mean to say that in a year, we will have made an enormous amount of progress. I don't know whether that, that means we're 20% we're up the hill or 90% up the hill or where we are in, in, in the middle there. But wherever we are, we'll be in a position to be doing a lot more post-mortem-y stuff than than we are now and, and learning more lessons from the experience as a whole, which hopefully we'll be able to apply to those places where we're still trying to get the pandemic under control. Uh, it, it, it will still be going on in a year. We just don't know to what extent and both in terms of case counts and, and geographically, how much of it is bouncing back to places like the U.S. that will be trying to open their borders to places that have, for instance, not been able to roll out the vaccine to the same extent. So that's a whole new problem, which sounds like an, an episode for the future. So, Carl, thank you very much for joining me for today's episode. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, this has been the 11th episode of Dangerous Exponents. You can find all of our past episodes on issues from masks to super spreader events at dangerousexponents.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Tennis Abstract. Carl is at Carl Bialik. And we'd love to hear from you, suggestions for future episodes or thoughts you have about what we talked about today. Um, so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.